Well, for those that don't know me, my name's uh, Josh Walker, and I'm one of the other elders here at Cornerstone. I'm not here up here all the time, so I figure it's always good to introduce myself if someone's new. Um, I came here about eight and a half years ago uh, to help start Eternity Bible College and now get to serve as the uh, president there, and it's a great joy and privilege for me. Um, but also at the same time, another great joy and privilege I have is to help shepherd uh, you as a flock, and it's uh, a joy for me as well. And I get to share with you this morning from the Word of God. Um, I'm excited this morning, but also um, I just recognize that there's going to be some difficult things, I think, this morning for some of you. Um, I've been praying for you. I know there's been quite a few of us that have been praying for you and been praying for me to be able to communicate God's Word to you this morning. Um, but I'm excited. Um, the there's really kind of two points that I want you to get this morning, and the first one I think is what's going to be the hardest, and that is that everything is about Jesus, and the implication of it all being about Jesus is that it's not all about you. And we chuckle, but I, I got to be honest, I think a lot of times in our lives we start to think it really is all about us, and we start to have frustrations and anger with God because it really is all about us deep down, and there's some really difficult things. I mean, sometimes... There's simple things where we get frustrated with God, but I've got to be honest, there's some very difficult trials that we go through where also we have to come to face that same reality that it is all about Jesus and it's not all about us. So that's going to be our first point that we're going to see as we work through this passage. The second one is that our response to that fact, our response to the fact that it's all about Jesus and not all about us, how we respond to that reality really reveals who we are and what we think about Jesus. It reveals whether we have the kind of faith that is, I believe in you, God, no matter what, I cling to you no matter what, or if we have that kind of faith that says, as long as you do good things for me, as long as you do what I want, as long as you give, then I'm going to believe in you, but as soon as you don't, I'm going to walk away. And we see in the Gospel of John that he, is going to, he over and over shows us there's two kinds of people. There's people with true saving faith, and then there's all these other sorts of people that they believe in Jesus for all sorts of reasons, but in the end, they all walk away. And I know that, that here this morning, there are some of you that are in this category that when pressures come, when trials come, you're going to end up walking away. And I'm going to call you this morning and say, look, when you look at your life, what is it that gets exposed and move over into this category of those that believe Jesus no matter what? Let me pray as we begin. Father, you know what my prayer has been for these people Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for Jesus and how glorious and amazing he is. Lord, I thank you for the way that your word confronts our lives, that your spirit is here to move amongst us this morning, and so I beg you to work. I pray in the name of our Savior King, who this is all about, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, just some background as we come to John chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 43 where Jared left off last week. And I just want to remind you of where we've come. It's going to become important at a couple points along here. At the end of chapter 2, Jesus cleanses the temple, right? He goes into the temple. He says, enough of this business. I'm going to clear everything up. He cleanses the temple. Spends some time in Judea. Judea, if you don't know the geography of Israel, is kind of in the south-central portion. And then he says, I'm time for me to head to Galilee. Galilee's in the north, also in the center. In between the two is Samaria. So along the way, what we talked about last week was how in the middle of Samaria... He stops and spends a couple of days there. And then what happens here is we now pick up again as he continues his journey north to Galilee. So verse 43, after the two days, the two days being the ones that he spent in Samaria, he departed for Galilee. 
For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So John resumes the journey, which is pretty straightforward. You know, verse 43 is easy to understand, I hope, for most of you. But quite honestly, you get to verse 44 and 45, and you kind of scratch your head. You're like, huh? So he has no honor in his hometown, but when they come to Galilee, the Galileans welcome him. Now, one thing you have to know is that John, and when, uh, when Todd introduced this book, John assumes that we already have the other Gospels, right? He writes later, and so when he quotes this little bit about uh, a prophet not having honor in his hometown, I believe he would have for us to have in mind the other Gospels where we know what happens to Jesus when he goes to Nazareth, which is in Galilee. When he goes into Galilee, the way that he isn't accepted. And so for us to have that in mind, that's going to happen. But in the way that John's telling the story, it hasn't quite happened yet. So John is beginning to build for us this tension and this irony of this reality that he right now is accepted and loved, but there's coming a time, as we should know from reading the other Gospels, when they're all going to reject him and they're going to cast him out. So at this point, this lack of honor hasn't been manifested, but a time is coming soon where it will. Now, I want to just give you a little bit of a history lesson. Uh, Todd shared a little bit about who the Pharisees were when we were in chapter 3. But when we think about the Jewish leadership in Israel at the time, there's two main groups, and you're probably familiar with them, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, sometimes we just think of them as all, you know, all these Jewish leaders, and they were all religious. Those two groups were very different, and they despised each other, absolutely hated each other, Um, even worse than, like, Democrats and Republicans. Um, (laughs) The Sadducees, and and they had two completely different sources of their power and of their leadership and everything. And to understand what's going on through the course of Jesus' ministry, you have to understand a bit of this. So the Sadducees were the ones that they governed. They they had the power. They had compromised with the Romans, made a deal with the Romans, and they were the ones that got to run everything that happened on the temple. right? And running everything that happened on the temple was pretty good, if you know what I mean. right? You got to have all these deals where you kind of have to sell, oh, sorry, that... That dove's not going to work. You'll have to buy ours. Oh, sorry, it costs five times as much. All the stuff that Jesus was really ticked off about back in chapter 2 was being run by the Sadducees. And all of the people hated the corruption that surrounded everything in the temple. Right? Can you imagine if you were required to go to the temple, and every time you go there, you know it's going to be corrupt. You know walking in, it's like, okay, I'm basically going to have to pay a bribe to even be able to make my sacrifice. And the frustration on the part of the people toward the Sadducees who govern that whole system. Well, the Pharisees, on the other hand, they were the, the popular leaders. And I don't mean popular like you're popular in uh, you know, junior high, like everyone likes you. I mean popular in the sense that they governed just on the basis of the people's support. The Pharisees were the ones that oversaw the whole synagogue system. So synagogues were placed right all in every city. Everyone had their synagogue and everyone went on a regular basis. That's where the Pharisees were. So they communicated. They were the, they were the party of the common man, if you will which is odd for us because we tend to think of Pharisees as the high and lofty ones, which in terms of the way they viewed their righteousness was true, but the way that they exercised their power was by leading all of the Jews in the kind of the common places, all the places outside of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was the center for the Sadducees, and the Pharisees were everywhere else. So when Jesus goes in in chapter 2 and cleanses the temple, he made the Sadducees really mad, but he made all the Pharisees pretty happy. Because they looked at it, and just like all the common people, they looked at what Jesus did, and they said, yeah, it's about time someone went in there and told those Sadducees what they were doing was wrong. 
And so what seems to have happened is that Jesus' popularity when he went in and cleansed the temple went from kind of nobody, no one really knew about who he was, to all of a sudden he was like a folk hero. Everyone knew about who this Jesus was. He finally stood up to the Sadducees. He stood up to this, this system. And so the Pharisees and everybody else would have loved Jesus at this point. But Jesus knows. Remember at the end of chapter 2? He knows what's in the heart of man, and he doesn't entrust himself to them. He knows that this popularity that they have is only because of this political reality, that he's cleansed the temple, and so, oh, we don't have to pay the tax. And so they all love him. And what John is foreshadowing for us here is that there's a time coming where we're headed down this path where eventually everyone's going to hate him. The Pharisees are going to turn on him as well. It's not just going to be the Sadducees. It's also going to be the Pharisees that turn on him. And so he's beginning to have us start to see this, this boy. Because at the end, when you see the Pharisees and Sadducees get together to kill Jesus, that is the most just crazy group of people getting together. We have no, it's, it's like you can't even imagine how much they hated each other. And for them to both hate Jesus enough to say, let's get together and kill this guy is a huge deal. And Jesus is actually, I believe, orchestrating that reality by first ticking off the Sadducees, and then he's going to spend the next three years getting the Pharisees worked up enough to where they say, we're done with you, we want to kill you too. We'll even side with the Sadducees if we have to. And that's, I think, a big picture of what's going on in the course of the Gospels over the course of Jesus' ministry. And it's part of what John is wanting to hint at here when he says this little phrase. And what all of this is about is you remember back in chapter 1 in the, uh, in the prologue said that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Right? John is wanting to put on display for us how at, at various points they kind of received him, but then they would reject him. But his own, his own family, those who were his, his household, his, the, they did not receive him. They rejected him. I believe it's also here in contrast to what the Samaritans just happened with the Samaritans, right? Those who were not of his were actually the ones that gave him a very grand reception. Stay with us two days, talk to us, teach us. The great reception. Not, hey, stay and do miracles, do a bunch of great stuff for us, make us bread, all that. It was teach us who you are. The reception of the Samaritans was completely different than the reception of those that are in Israel. So this brings us back to Galilee, to Cana. In verse 46, he says, So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So Jesus comes here to Cana, and he reminds us again because he wants us to associate the same place. Remember chapter 2 where Jesus had 
hidden the shame of this family and had covered their shame by honoring them, by producing wine out of water so that they wouldn't have been shamed in that way and had covered and been so gracious. He says, at the same place, Jesus has come again. And now Capernaum, so for most of you probably don't know the geography of it, so Cana's kind of a little bit up into the hills, and Galilee, um, the Sea of Galilee is where Capernaum is. So they're about 20 miles apart. So this guy's going to travel. If he's walking, it's about two days' journey. If he's riding a horse, it might be closer to one day's journey um, of how far he's going to travel to see Jesus. And I want you to think for a minute. So this guy is a royal official. If you're a royal official, you're used to being in control. Right? Everyone does what you tell them to do. You're, you're not at everyone else's whim. They're at your whim. But he has now come face to face, and we all know how this happens. This may have happened for some of you, where you think you're in control until you come face to face with a reality you can't control. And for this man, what it is is that his beloved son has a fever and is going to die. Multiple times in the chapter, he is going to die. It's emphasized that he is going to die. He is at the point of death, and he recognizes there's nothing I can do. And so he expresses the faith that he knows at this point. He's heard of this guy, Jesus, and he's heard that maybe he's over in Cana. Now, you've got to think about it. Like, at this point, there were no cell phones. You know, no one could call him and say, hey, yeah, Jesus is here in Cana. Why don't you come over? There was no Facebook check-in, you know, check Jesus' webpage, check his Facebook. Oh, he checked in in Cana. Let's head over there. Right? Somehow, by word of mouth, he heard, hey, he's headed towards Cana. And as an act of faith, the man travels that far just to see a guy that he's never met before because he believes he's the only one that can do something about this situation. And he goes, and the, and the way that it's put is that he begins to beg Jesus to heal his son. It just says asked, but there's an urgency in this word of him begging and just urgently and continually asking Jesus to come down. And Jesus says something that's a little odd we're going to come back to in a few minutes in verse 48. He says that to him, and he just ignores it. And he says, look, come down and heal my son. Jesus doesn't agree, does he? He doesn't say, I'm going to come down. He says, no, go, your son will live. And the guy takes it. He says, okay, I'll go. And he starts immediately heading home. And can you imagine as he's got in his head Jesus' word and he's walking that whole journey back, believing my son's going to be healed when I get back. My son's going to be healed when I get back. And all of a sudden coming up the road, he recognizes those are my servants. My servants are coming. And I can tell by the way they're walking and by the look on their faces that my son is healed. And his urgent expectation as he meets them and he asks them this question of great expectation and hope and faith, tell me the hour. Tell me the hour that he was healed. You see, because in his heart, he wanted to have his faith in who Jesus was strengthened and verified by knowing, yes, it was exactly, it was Jesus. There's no doubt, there's no sense that it could have just been random, that it was Jesus who healed him. Right? Isn't it important for us to, when we pray for things and we hear that there was an answer, we can ask, tell me when. Tell me how it happened. Did it happen the way that I was praying for it to happen? And he gets his faith confirmed. He believes, his whole household believes. And so you see through this whole thing this, that Jesus is healing the man who has faith. And what a, what a great example of faith that we have in the guy. He believes something that he doesn't even yet know, but he acts on the faith he doesn't even hardly know. He steps out and he goes. When Jesus tells him something different than even he wanted, right? I want you to come down. He says, I'm not going to come down, but go and your son will live. He believes and immediately acts on his faith, right? He acts by going home. Okay, I'm not going to beg you anymore. 
He clearly believed. It says that he believed the word that Jesus said. So he has an active faith that obeys and, and heads down. John's just painting for us a picture. This is what it looks like to, to be the kind that is truly of that faith that really trusts Jesus no matter what. And as he goes down, the question is even a question of faith. Right? It's not like he asks it like, well, what hour did it happen? Like maybe he was already healed. You see this sense of like, he's just excited to know that Jesus actually healed him. And then you see it's a faith that actually spreads because his whole household believes. For him to share, we all saw my son who was sick. And there's so many more implications. We, th- we think of, of our kids as just, you know, a wonderful gift. And, but for them, it was so much more than that. I mean, your son was your inheritance. They were the ones that were going to take care of you in your old age. There was, there's so much more to them having a son. And for the son of the house to be sick unto death and now be healed, everyone would see it and believe. And he propagates his faith. He shares with other people. Now let's go back to verse 48. Jesus says to him, unless y'all, you miss it there, but it's y'all. It's you plural. Unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. So when Jesus looks at this man, he says something to him, but he's addressing everybody else that's around. All you Galileans, here I've shown up in Cana. Word's probably gotten out that he's turned the water to wine. He's back. Word's gotten out. We read from the other Gospels that they start bringing like sick people and demoniacs and can you make us food? You know, they just all start coming. And so he looks at this guy and I believe he really wants to intentionally contrast this man's simple faith, active faith with the rest of them. He says, look, the problem with the rest of you is you're here for the show. You're not here because you really believe in me. You're here for the show. You're here for what you can get from me. That, that, that's why you're really here. And I wonder how much of us are here for the show. May not be here this morning for the show. We don't have a very fancy show. But I mean, are you following Jesus because of what he gives you? Or are you following Jesus no matter what? You see, they wanted something from him. They wanted him to do signs and wonders. They wanted all that. And he says, you're not even going to believe unless I give you that. Now, later on, as he develops it out, he's even going to say to those who had believed in him some very hard things, and they're going to leave. They're going to say, we're out of here. And it's just great the way John just keeps unfolding that. You see, he wanted this guy to see his larger need isn't his son. And he wanted everyone else around to see, my big need isn't that my son is sick. My big need is that I need to believe in Jesus. And he wanted everyone else around to say, you know what? These signs and wonders, all the stuff you want to see, that's not your biggest need. Your biggest need is why I'm really here. It's what the Samaritans got and none of you are getting. They understand who I am and they're willing to believe in me and follow me. Which type of person are you? Are you the type that follow Jesus no matter what? Or are you the type that just follows him for the show to get what you want, to get what you want from him? Maybe you've seen yourself in this royal official, maybe not. Maybe you'll be more like this next guy. In chapter 5, verse 1, we read this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, 
do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and when I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, for some, if you're not reading the ESV, you may have noticed there's no verse 4 here. Um, we're not going to talk about it at length this morning. We're going to talk about it when we get to chapter 8. But what is mostly verse 4 in, in, in certain Bibles, best we can tell wasn't there in the original. What it was is it was just like I read it, and then someone wrote a little explanation in a margin once, and then the guy who copied it said, oh, was that supposed to be in the margin, or does that belong here? And eventually kind of worked its way in. So there's like this explanation there for some of you. Um, that, that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, when we get to chapter 8, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Now, it says he goes up to Jerusalem. So John here takes two chronologically separated events. Jesus is in Cana, and this event happens, and then he says, okay, now Jesus is in Jerusalem for another feast. Now, why does John do that? Because he wants us to see these two healings in contrast to one another. He brings two chronologically separated events, says, okay, I'm going to bring these and superimpose them right next to each other so you can see something important about Jesus. Now, he goes up to Jerusalem, and he goes to this place called Bethesda. And I have a, a couple of pictures I wanted to show you, just so you get an idea of where this is. Um, I, I love geography and kind of the way things happen. Here is a model of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. And so the site of the crucifixion um, and also of his burial is there kind of towards the bottom, right outside of that city gate. You see that? And then kind of in the, in the background, you see the Temple Mount. And just to the left of the Temple Mount, you see kind of a little red colonnaded area there. That is where the Pool of Bethesda is. So these pools were very large pools, and through archaeology we've determined where they were, very large pools that were intended. Now the location there, wait, put that back up. What um, They're there because if you think of everything that happens on the Temple Mount, it needs a lot of water. A, to wash a lot of things, and B, there's going to be a lot of blood that needs to be washed off. Like, let's be honest, let's think through what happens on the Temple Mount. Lots of blood. Figure it out. That's why you've got the pools right up there. They can flow down right into the Temple Mount and supply all the water for the Temple Mount. Now, the next one shows you our best reconstruction archaeologically of what it looked like. Now, you read Bethesda, and it's got five colonnades. I originally thought it was like a pentagon, you know? But actually, it's more like a, uh, a rectangle with a dividing line down the middle. And so you have these colonnades, and so you can see when it says there was a multitude of invalids, right? They would have been laying in all of that colonnaded area around these two very large pools. Now, I highlight the center colonnade there for you. That's the fifth one, right? So you've got the top, the bottom, the sides, and then the middle one. So there's five. Um, and then if you, if you go to the next slide, you see this is what it looks like today. So see the depth of the pool? These were very deep pools. You see the center colonnade, kind of what's left of it right there. That would actually be the walkway. So the, uh, the, um, the pillars would have been built up higher than that. Right, so this is where this man is laying. Just to give you a little bit of a picture, one thing I think that's always important is for us to remember these events happened in real places that we can still go to today. Right, this isn't some made-up story. All of the kind of geographical stuff, it makes sense for exactly the way that things are laid out. And that's exactly where it happened. And Jesus comes, and there's a multitude laying there, but Jesus just picks one guy. Now, I don't know about you, but does it bother you that there's a multitude laying there and Jesus heals one guy and leaves. I think for some of you, you're thinking, well, what about everybody else? What about all the other lame, paralyzed, and blind people that were there that John talks about? Why didn't Jesus heal all of them? 
And I got to be honest, if that's your first reaction, it probably is revealing that in your heart, it's more about you than it is about Jesus. Because Jesus comes and he selects the man. He knows that he had been here. He selects this man because he had been here for 38 years, right? So that everyone would know who this guy was. No one's going to think like, oh, he just kind of had a side ache and Jesus healed it. It wasn't. No, 38 years the guy had been there. Everyone knows. And so he picks him and he singles him out, not because of who the guy is. See, the first story, man of great faith. This guy's going to have no faith. In fact, he's a chump. And Jesus heals him anyway. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. It's not about the man and his son. It's not about this invalid. It's really about Jesus putting himself on display. Jesus knows he's been there a long time. He comes into this place, he picks the guy out, and he asks him the question, do you want to get well? And the guy, quite frankly, is a bit of a chump, right? One commentator put it this way, the way the guy answers is the crotchety grumblings of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he's answering a stupid question. What do you mean, do I want to get well? I'm laying here, I lay here all the time, I want to get in there, but I'm not fast enough, and the waters, you know, when they stir... That was the, apparently the belief is when the waters kind of did their little thing, you had to be the first one in to get healed. And so he doesn't even really answer Jesus' question. He's just crotchety, right? He doesn't understand that Jesus, when he stands before him, isn't offering to put him in the pool. He's saying, I am the one that can make you well. But instead of recognizing who Jesus was right in front of him, he just grumbles, crotchety. Uh, yeah, I've been here all the time. I can't get in. No one will put me in the pool. And, and I think of it kind of like, it's, it's like someone walking up and you say, do you want a million dollars? And you go, well, yeah, I play the lottery every week. Of course I want to win a million dollars. I put the dollar in, but I never win. And, you know, all these other people, they win. And they're not. And not recognize the guy who just said, do you want a million dollars is Bill Gates. And he's got a checkbook he could pull out right now and write the check for it. And you're grumbling and like, it's like, no, you're missing the point. And Jesus has a pretty easy way of helping him realize he missed the point. He looks at the guy and he says, get up. Guy gets up, says, pick up your mat. He's laying on a little straw mat, rolls it up. Get out of here. You're done. Got the point. Guy have any faith? No, he doesn't even know who the guy is. He doesn't even take the time to find out who Jesus was. Right? He's just a chump. Now, it's amazing. Jesus displays his power by healing a 38-year-old sickness. So first he healed a sickness unto death from 20 miles away with a word. Now he heals a 38-year sickness, invalidity, with a word. He displays his power in this man regardless of his faith. And you see, the, the point is that it's about putting Jesus on display. And i got to be honest, one of the things that frustrates me more than a lot of other things, I don't know if I could say more than anything, is those that would tell you the reason you don't get well or the reason so-and-so didn't get well is because you didn't have enough faith. That is a horrid lie from the pit. You see, Jesus' desire in healing or not healing is to put himself on display. It's all about him, and that's what it's all about. And this guy didn't have any faith, and he got healed. It's not about having enough faith or having faith. That's not the point. It's about Jesus putting himself on display. That is ultimately what it is about. 
but it does matter for the one who gets healed. You see, the, the, the man who had faith and was healed, and he goes and he tells his household, the implication is this is one who's now part of, part of Jesus' family. And you look at this guy, he actually, Jesus is going to come and he's going to warn him, like, look, things are going to get worse for you. You need to be careful. But you just look at the intentionality of Jesus. I'm going to come back to that in a minute of his warning. But the intentionality of Jesus, he has this purpose to glorify himself, and he comes and he says, I'm going to do it through someone who doesn't even believe in me, doesn't even care, isn't even going to glorify me afterwards, but I have my purpose of putting myself on display. And I just want to ask you that in the things of your life, the things that you've, you've grumbled at God about and you've... Look, for some of you, they're difficult things. God has taken from you maybe your health or maybe the health of your spouse or maybe your children. And I recognize that these are difficult things to have to think about. But do we believe, do we sincerely believe that it's all about Jesus and that in all of those things, what Jesus is wanting to do is to put himself on display. And that for some of you, Jesus is saying, look, the best way for me to put myself on display is to take this from you. And do you realize the difficulty that we have if we think, no, it's about us holding on to that, and that, that was mine, and I want to hold on to it. And Jesus says, no, it's not. And then for someone else that you see, and Jesus instead says, no, I'm going to give you this, and that's how I'm going to best put myself on display. And for us to be, well, why didn't you do that with me? Why did you do that to them? And all of the tensions that happen in the midst of the difficulties of life, the stress of sicknesses and of death and of all these things, we won't be able to make sense of any of that in life if we aren't able to come to grips with the reality that it's all about Jesus. I got to be honest, it's, if you can't grasp that, you're going to struggle and you're going to fight and you're going you're gonna to wonder and you're going to doubt and you're going to be sad and you're going to be angry because you can't come to grips with reality that it's all about him and he's good and I trust him to do what is right. Nothing else will make sense. It's like when Paul, in Philippians chapter 1, he talks about how Paul, the apostle who started all these churches, he's, he's taken the gospel through Asia and now into Europe, and now he's imprisoned, he's in chains, and people are looking at it saying, why God, why would you put him in prison? And Paul writes in Philippians and he says, I want you to know that my circumstances, my imprisonment, has turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And Paul says, and what that has led me to is a state of contentment where I can say, to live is Christ. You see, for Paul, it was all about Jesus, and that's the only way that he could make sense of his imprisonment as one who was sent out to the Gentiles. And I gotta say that for all of us, the only way you're gonna be able to make sense of the circumstances of your life is if you're able to come to the point where you say, it's all about you, Jesus. Because Paul can follow up for to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain. Only makes sense in light of to live is Christ. Whether G, why Jesus healed one and not all the others only makes sense in light of to live as Christ. You see, all of it, all of these circumstances of life only make sense in light of to live as Christ. It's all about him. Now look, I, I'm standing up here and I'm talking to a big, large group of people and I know you've got a lot of junk going on. 
And I don't want to in any way minimize the pain and the difficulty of those realities. But I'm telling you, it's the only way that it'll make sense is if you come to the grip, come to grips with that reality that it's all about Jesus. Now, the amazing thing about it being all about Jesus is sometimes we think, okay, so it being all about Jesus means he's going to go and do this wonderful thing and it's just going to be a bummer for me. But the amazing thing about what God does is his path to the greatest glorification of Jesus, follow me carefully here, the path to the greatest glorification of Jesus is also the path to the greatest joy and contentment and satisfaction for us. We may doubt that. We may not understand it. There's all sorts of things that may come along. But God tells us that for those that are mine, for those that are my people, my path to greatest glorification of Jesus, so it being all about him, is also the way to bringing you the greatest joy and satisfaction and contentment. And that's why the letter to Philippians is the letter of joy. Are you with me? Now, sometimes in the middle of that, the path to Jesus' greatest glorification and display of who he is doesn't mean he's always going to heal us. It doesn't mean he's always going to make things easy. In fact, sometimes he's saying, I'm going to make it hard because I need to put myself on display through you. And he's going to look at you and say, just as I put my, I put my character on display through my own suffering, I'm going to ask you to put my character on display through your suffering. And he's going to say, but, but trust me that I am good and that there will be the greatest joy and contentment down this path that will greatest glorify me will also bring you the greatest joy and contentment. And that's the amazing thing about it. It's not like, oh, we've got to just grin and bear it and suffer through it. He says, no, trust me, this path may not look like the easiest. It may not look like the best, but this is the path that I have for you to walk that will bring you the greatest joy and contentment. That's the amazing thing about our Lord. But there's more going on here. Follow with me, picking up in verse 9 again. He says, now that day was the Sabbath. Oh, Loaded statement. John kind of throws in, oh. And what we find out is that what Jesus did in this healing, when he picked this guy and he chose to do what he did when he did, it was like him walking up to the Pharisees and going, bark, right in the eye. Picking a fight, poke him in the eye, you know, draw a line in the sand, step across it. What are you going to do about it? That's what Jesus did right here. He was clearly picking a fight by healing the man on the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, chump. The man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is this man who said you take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So afterward, we don't know how long afterward, Jesus finds him in the temple. Remember the kind of proximity of the two locations? And said to him, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away, chump, and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. I want you to first of all see the blindness of the religious leaders. That in the midst of an amazing display of God's power and of who Jesus was, All they can get caught up on is someone is breaking one of their little rules that they have added to what God's law had been. You're carrying your mat around on the wrong day. The guy's been an invalid for 38 years, and that's what you're concerned with? And we look at him and we're like, oh, I can't believe that. I would never be like that. Yeah, I would never be one who comes to church and says, 
wow, the music's too loud, and the seats are too close together, and wow, I like Todd better than I like Josh, and, you know, I, I really wish they wouldn't, you know, I don't like the shirt that Josh wore, you know, maybe, maybe I'll kind of get him a new shirt and tell him. You know, when we've got people that are getting called out of darkness into light, we get to see people come and put Jesus on display in baptism on a regular basis in this church, and we complain about those things? Right? You think about in the course of your life as Jesus is doing amazing things in your life and the little things that you get upset about. Food wasn't quite warm. Like, it's just all sorts of things. And I think sometimes we're just like the Pharisees here. Like we just get all caught up in these little things and we miss the big thing that God's doing. Let's not miss it. Let's not miss it. Jesus comes and he warns the man. In verse 14, he says, See, you're well. Now stop sinning. The point is, you were sinning. And for this man in particular, your sickness was a result of your sin. That's the implication here. You are now well. You better stop sinning or things are going to get worse for you. And Jesus' point isn't just you're going to get sick again, but he's talking about final judgment. Saying, look, you've got a lot more to be concerned about than just your sickness. There's something coming. And later on in chapter 5, Jesus is going to talk about how there's a resurrection unto life and a resurrection unto judgment in verse 29. And he's looking ahead to that and saying, look, you have some much bigger things to be concerned with. He approaches this guy and he looks at him and he goes, you have to understand. Now, I, I want to be careful here. In one sense, all sickness and all death is a result of sin in general. Right? From the fall, from what Adam and Eve did, there's, there's one sense that it's in general. But that doesn't mean that every time someone's sick, it's a result of something that they did in particular. It's very clear when we get to John chapter 9, Jesus is going to lay out a lot of this in more detail. But with this individual and with some of us in particular, and I think you know it, I've known people who it was clear for them that what had happened to them was a result of their sin and God's judgment for their sin. And so I think if this is you, you probably know it. That there are times will God will use sickness to judge you for your sin. But there's a second point that I think is even more important, that for some of you, the things that you're concerned about, the things that seem so big in your life, are small in comparison to the reality of final judgment. And just like he says to this guy, look, something worse is going to happen to you. For some of you, the thing that's most on your mind, that you're most concerned with, that you're most worried about, Jesus wants to say to you this morning, there's something worse you should be worried about. You should be worried about where you're going to be on that day when I resurrect everybody either unto life or unto death. Unto life or unto judgment, unto my kingdom or unto eternal damnation. Where are you going to be in that day? That's what you should be most concerned about. And Jesus looks at this man and he says, look, your sickness has led you here. And I know there, there's some of you that because of your sin, whether it's drug use or drunkenness or fornication or adultery or greed or lust or gluttony, those sins have led you to sickness, maybe directly. Maybe you've actually contracted diseases as a result of those sins. Or maybe Jesus has, maybe God has just put onto you things because of that and you know it. And what I have to say to you is repent, turn from those things. That's what he's wanting. That's what he tells this guy, right? Sin no more. Time to stop. 
When you feel it, when you know it, it's time to stop and keep in mind, this isn't as bad as it's going to get. It's going to get worse. I believe that's what Jesus would have to say to you this morning. Now, Jesus is about to turn up the heat. As I said before, he's wanting to take them. So the, the Sadducees were ticked off at him. Now, John here has been talking about the Jews. It's pretty clear, clear these are the Pharisees. Because the Sadducees really didn't care a whole lot about the, keeping the Sabbath, not keeping the Sabbath, all the little rules. That wasn't a big deal for the Sadducees. These are primarily Pharisees that are here that are that upset at Jesus, that are angry at Jesus over the Sabbath issue. Now you look at the guy, so as soon as Jesus comes and tells him, sin no more, time to stop, you know, final judgment's going to come for you, wouldn't you love to just see the guy repent and turn? And Instead what he does, he runs off to tell him. Found out who it was. It was this Jesus guy. Really? The guy who healed you? You're going to go rat on him first thing? Going to go turn him in? And the Pharisees, what's their response? They start persecuting him. This is the first time in the gospel that we start to see the open persecution of Jesus, the open attack and hostility towards Jesus, and it's about to get much worse. Because Jesus looks at him, and I believe everything that he's done in chapter 5 was to lead up to this point, because Jesus was intentional and purposeful about choosing this man, everything that's led up to this point, because Jesus wanted to say this to them. He wanted to say, you know how in your guys' discussions, you know, all you Jews, you have these discussions about does God rest on the Sabbath? You know, everything keeps working, right? The universe still holds together. So God's obviously still working on the Sabbath. And you guys have developed a rationale for why that's okay, and it's all about because he's God, so it's okay for him to do that. So Jesus says, yep, same with me. That's basically what he says. Same with me. I can keep working too on the Sabbath, just like my Father, God, So if he stuck his finger in their eye by healing on the Sabbath, he just did the full right hook. Picked major fight. And they get it. Verse 18, they get pretty ticked off. And Jesus, in the rest of this chapter, is going to unfold for us. He was leading up to putting on display who he is in relationship to the Father. And the rest of this chapter is going to be Jesus showing us This is who I am. And when we think about it being all about Jesus, it should be all about Jesus because of who he is. And that's what he's going to unfold for us in the rest of the chapter. Now, as we finish, and we're going to sing one last song, I just want to say, look, I've, I've put my finger on some difficult things through the course of this message, and I know that. Um, My desire is to see you be able to walk in faithfulness and in strength because you get that it's all about Jesus. My desire is that for my own life, that when I come and I face those struggles, I can walk through it because I know that it's ultimately all about Jesus. If you need someone to talk to, if you've been struggling, there will be people up at the prayer room you can come talk to. If you just say, you know what, I, I've been this kind of faith. I've been here, I've been following Jesus for the show because of what it gets me, because people like, what, whatever it is, and you want to say, you know what, I'm done with that. I, I, I want to follow Jesus no matter what. Come talk to someone about it. But these are difficult things. But Jesus, here's the glorious thing. Here's the last thing I want to leave you with. Jesus wants to give you the greatest joy and contentment in your life at the same time as he most glorifies himself.
That's the amazing thing of what God is doing in the lives of his church. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this group of people. I thank you for your spirit being at work in us this morning. And Lord, for for each one of us, I pray that you would take your word and you would apply it to our hearts, that you would walk with us, that you would um, encourage us that we could be faithful to follow you. Lord, we want to be those that have true, genuine, saving faith. Lord, expose, expose our weaknesses, expose the places where we don't trust you and lead us into a place of full and complete trust and allegiance to you as our king. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.